But we'll be in, in Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17 today. And uh, the title of our, our message this morning is The Shock of Christmas. The Shock of Christmas. Question, how, how did the human Christ come to be? Answer, we know that the Holy Spirit of God came upon Mary. She conceived and bare a son, and his name was called Jesus. This answer, simple as it is, is still very complex. The idea of a virgin conceiving a son is crazy in and of itself, but when we add to this the idea that the son that the virgin conceived was indeed Jesus, the Savior of the world, our minds are blown in a whole new way. Well, that's the theological answer uh, in a simple format. We know that Jesus came from a line of people as every other human who had ever been born. Matthew, in his gospel, was seeking to reveal to the future readers how Christ came to be the legitimate king who would sit on the throne of David eternally. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, we see the, the prophet Nathan declared that it would be David's descendants through whom the eternal king would eventually come. That passage says this, And when thy days be fulfilled, and when thou sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men, but my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I put away before thee. In thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. We know that this was a promise given uh, to the, the, the lineage of David, those who would come after him, that there would always be a seed of David who was sitting on the throne. But as we think about the person of Christ, we sometimes can only focus on the, 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 the element of his coming as seen in the Gospels and not who it was that he came from. If you were to ask me where I came from, I would be quick to answer that I am the son of Sewell and Patsy. If you want to go further, Patsy's parents are Alice and Lawrence Daniels, and Sewell's parents are Vern and Madeline Frost. I could continue down the heritage that I have as a child of my parents, and in essence, that's what Matthew is doing here. He's revealing to us the line in which Christ came from to show that he was the legitimate king who would sit on the throne eternally. And as we think through the history of Israel, we understand that there were good kings and there were bad kings, but we can also understand and agree today that Christ was and is the best king. And he reigns eternally. And so as we read passages like Matthew 1, Sometimes we skip over them thinking, oh, it's just a list of names. But friend, what we see in Matthew 1 is the fulfillment of a promise of God. And it encourages our hearts to believe this truth that God always keeps his promises. Do you believe that today? 
Do you believe that God will make good on his word? Everything he has spoken will come true. Everything he has said will come to be. And so if you're familiar with your Bible, you'll understand in the Gospels that Luke also gives a list of names that Christ came from, but they differ. Most believe that Luke is seeking to show how Christ came from the line of Mary, while Matthew is showing how Christ fulfilled the line of Joseph, even though Joseph was not his biological father. Luke was showing the line of Christ backwards, from Jesus to David to Abraham, and even all the way to Adam. But Matthew goes from Abraham to David through Joseph, and finally to the Christ. Now you may be sitting here today thinking to yourself, oh great, now we're going to sit through a history lesson. But friend, I hope you'll understand that Matthew 1 is more than a history lesson. In fact, the whole Bible is more than a book of history. The Bible is a divine book that reveals to us God's sovereign plan from all of eternity. And it's a plan that we can rest in even till this day. And so in Matthew's gospel, we see the shock of Christmas and what a shock this is. The big idea this morning is this. This account calls us to recognize the wickedness that resides in the world as well as the cleansing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ who reigns as the eternal king. I'm going to read that again. This account calls us to recognize the wickedness that resides in the world as well as the cleansing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ who reigns as the eternal king. We're just going to see two things this morning that hopefully are still shocking to us as we think through the Christmas story. And as we do, I pray that God would rightly apply them to our hearts and that it would draw us to a place of worship as we enter the Christmas season. The first thing I want us to see is who Christ came from. Who Christ came from. We established earlier that Christ was born of a virgin, meaning that he was not Joseph's biological son in a fleshly sense. But we also established how Matthew was giving us this lineage to show how Christ is the true king who will be seated eternally on the throne of David. Now, if you understand the Gospels, you'll understand that Matthew was a tax collector. And tax collectors, especially back in Bible times, were really good at keeping lists, and especially lists of names, because they needed to know who paid and who hadn't paid. They needed to know who they were going to go after, and in some cases, they needed to know who had money so they could charge them extra, right? And so as Matthew is giving us this list of names, he's doing so uh, as it is true to him. This is something that he would have been familiar with. This is something that he would have been used to be doing. And so as we go through this list of names, I want us to understand that this is indeed not a complete list. But Matthew gives us this list in a way that would have made it easy for the readers, especially those early Christians, to remember and retain. Now you'll notice when Matthew gets to verse number 17, he says this, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David unto the carrying away uh, into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Does that mean that there were three equal parts of 14 that led to the coming of Christ? Well, if you're familiar with your Bible, you'll understand that both Matthew and Luke do leave some names out. 
But Matthew's desire here is, as I said, to give the people this lineage in a way that would be easy for them to remember. And the purpose in him giving it this way was so they could remember God's faithfulness through three different periods of history. It's also interesting to note that in the Hebrew, the name for King David, when paralleled with the Hebrew numbering system, adds up to 14. And I don't think it's a stretch that Matthew would have understood that people would have been aware of this. And he wanted them to have a way of remembering this truth. And if Matthew took the time in such a dedicated way to reveal this reality that Christ came from the line of David, do you think it's important for us to understand as well? And so Matthew is desiring that they would understand these truths, that they would grasp what God had done in history so that they could cling to the promises of what God would do in the future. Matthew's desire, again, is to show that God had been faithful. And in showing that God had been faithful, he was proving this reality that God would continue to be faithful in the years to come. And if you get nothing else from this message this morning, remember this, God is faithful. He's faithful. From Genesis 3.15, where we see the first idea of a Savior coming into the world, until Revelation, at the close of the Bible, we understand that God has been faithful to keep His promises, to keep His word. And that's what Matthew is relaying to us. And as we go through a few of these names this morning, we understand that even when humanity is unfaithful, God remains faithful. So I want to take a sampling of this lineage that Matthew has written down for us, and I want us to see who it was that Christ came from. As we look in verse number one and verse number two, we see one of the first names that is listed for us is this man named Abraham. Now, when we studied through Genesis 1 through 11, we got all the way to the end of chapter 11, and there was a part of me that wanted to keep going uh, because I love the story of Abraham. I I love the call of God upon his life. I love his desire to follow after God, his faithfulness, though at times uh, it it wasn't what it should have been. Uh, We understand that he was the father of many nations whom God ultimately worked through to bring about a people for himself that we are grafted into. But what else do we know about Abraham? As I said, we know that he had great faith, but we also know that this man Abraham had a problem at times with lying. In Genesis 12 and Genesis chapter 20, two different instances where Abraham either lied about who his wife was or asked Sarah to lie about who she was uh, so that he could save himself. Now, oftentimes, when people lie, it's to preserve themselves, and that's exactly what Abraham was doing. He was fearful that something was going to happen to him, so what did he do? He said, you go tell them you're my sister. That way they can have you and leave me alone. Does that sound like a godly man? No, but that's what Abraham did. And this man, Abraham, though he had great faith, and though he's listed in the hall of faith, and though we read about him in the Old and New Testament, we understand that he was not a perfect man. This man Abraham is is known for many things, but some of what he is known for is this idea that he was indeed a liar and one who encouraged those around him to lie. So we're off to a rocky start. As we continue on in verse number three, we see the, the names of Judas or Judah and Tamar are also mentioned. Now, if you're familiar again with the book of Genesis, you'll understand that these two people had a history together, but it wasn't a good one. You can read this account in Genesis 38, but there was a time when Judah was looking for a prostitute and Tamar 
played the role of a prostitute. And they came together and they had some children. And it was from a sexual sin that took place. And these people are in, again, the line of Christ. In verse number 5, we see another name mentioned that we are somewhat familiar with. And this would be Rahab. Now, we're familiar with the, the wanderings of the children of Israel and how they came to uh, Jericho and God promised them that they were going to have this city and the spies went in and when they realized that, that they needed to protect themselves, they found themselves in the house of Rahab. And what did Rahab do? She protected them. She saved their lives so that they could go free. But what was Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute. She was a, one, a woman who made her living from a lifestyle that would not go with the word of God. And yet we see that God spared her as the city of Jericho fell into destruction. And not only her, but her parents and her family, God spared them as well. Why? Because of her faith. And Rahab is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith because of what she did for the men of God back in the city of Jericho. In verse number 6, we understand that there's another person mentioned, not by name, but she's mentioned as the wife of Uriah, and we know her as Bathsheba. We understand that Uriah was, or Uriah was a man of war, a faithful man of war, who when he was called into battle, obeyed what the king commanded. And in his faithfulness, we find that King David became unfaithful. And as he was on his rooftop and he peered over to where Bathsheba was, he saw her bathing and he called her to himself. The Bible says that she conceived and bore a son whose name was Solomon. And Solomon is actually the one from whom, whom the line of Christ continues as the ones who would sit on the throne. And so Bathsheba found herself in a difficult situation with a past that was marred, and yet we see that God was still willing and able and desiring to use her. The next person that I want to highlight is this person of Ruth in, uh, in, in verse 5 again. Now, if you don't know anything about the story of Ruth, Ruth would have been a Moabite woman, and the Moabites came from a sinful relationship between Lot and his daughter. That's where the, the people of Moab came from, and that's seen in Genesis 19, verses 30 and 37 and 38. And so she wasn't a woman of Jewish descent, but she was of a descent that would have brought shame, and yet God used her to be in the line of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In verse number 7, we see a man mentioned by the name of Rehoboam. If you're familiar with the kingdom of Israel, there came a point when Rehoboam's sin was so great that the kingdom became divided. And in Second Chronicles seven, or I'm sorry, chapter twelve and verse fourteen, we see this testimony. Uh, his testimony was this: that he did evil because he did not set his heart on seeking the Lord. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon, and when the king, uh, he was the king of the south when the kingdom was divided. And in fact, his heart was so filled with pride that he's the one who led to the kingdom being divided. And no matter how hard he tried, the kingdom under his reign was never united again. 
In verse number 9, we see Ahaz, who was the father of Hezekiah, one of Israel's good kings, Hezekiah was. In fact, he was one of the greatest kings. But we know that he did not follow in his father's footsteps, which was a good thing because Ahaz was an evil king. In 2 Chronicles 28, verse 27, the Bible says, And Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city, even in Jerusalem. But they brought him not into the sepulchres of the kings of Israel, and Hezekiah his son reigned in his stead. It's interesting to note that as the book of the Chronicles is given to us, they make a point to let us understand that Ahaz was not buried where the kings were buried. And why was that? Because he was an evil king. Because his heart was wicked, his heart was far from God. He was a selfish king who was filled with pride, and yet we see again that he is in the line of Christ. Just when we hope it's going to get better in verse number 10, we see Manasseh. Manasseh was also a wicked king, but his reign lasted for 55 years. The Bible says in 2 Kings 21 verse 9, but they hearkened not And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. Talk about a wicked ruler. Not only was he wicked in the things that he did, but he led those around him to do more wickedness than the nations that God had destroyed. And yet Manasseh is in the line of Christ. And then we see in verse number 11, Jeconias, or Jeconiah. And this guy is an interesting one. In Jeremiah twenty-two thirty, the Bible says this, Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. This man Jeconiah was so wicked that God said none of his children are going to sit on the throne. It's interesting that as Matthew goes through this lineage, he's pointing out how Christ was in the line of Joseph and how it carried all the way through these years, all the way back to Abraham. But as we said earlier, Jesus was not of blood lineage to Joseph. And so even though the promise was given that that no children of Jeconiah would sit on the throne, we see that God is able to overcome that decree by not allowing Jesus to have the blood of Joseph in him because he was the Son of God. And so all of these people that we have gone through today have a past that is marred. All of these people have a history that when we look at them, we would in some way say, wow, that person was evil. Wow, that person was wicked. Wow, that person was tainted in a way that I am unfamiliar with. The the testimonies that God has preserved for us about them reveal to us the depths of depravity within the hearts of humanity. And yet these are the people that God chose to bring His Son through. These people who were marred with sin these people who wandered away from God, these people who it seems at every turn turned their backs on the decrees and commands of God, these are the people that God used to bring about His Son, Jesus Christ. And as we go through this line of Christ, we see that this lineage reveals how badly the world needed a Savior. Christ came from a line that was imperfect, 
but we know he came in perfection. Christ came from a line that was marred and tainted with sin. But when Christ entered into this world and as he lived on this earth, he had no sin in him. And because he had no sin in him, he was able to be the perfect sacrifice for sins, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And though these were his people in the past, we see that God did a marvelous and miraculous work to preserve for us one who would come to die in our place so that we could be redeemed. From these examples seen in the lineage of Christ, we see pride and selfishness and sexual sin and idolatry and many other things. And though we're often quick to say, wow, look how bad those people are. Church, let us understand that everything that is mentioned in verses 1 through 17 are things that are still going on in our world today. And if we're honest, these are things that even go on in our own lives at times. And these are the people that Christ came from. If Matthew in his writing had ended in the middle of verse number 16, where it says this, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, if he stopped there, then we would be hopeless. But aren't you thankful that God used imperfection to bring about perfection? That God took that which was broken and brought from it the one who could make things whole? And verse number 16 continues on. It says, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. And if there's a reason to rejoice today, let us rejoice in this, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And like Paul, we could echo of whom we are the chief. And though this was his line, And as we understand that these were his people, we understand that Christ also came in a different way than they came for a purpose that they could have never fulfilled. This man, Jesus, though we're given his lineage in Matthew and Luke, we understand that he was not of ordinary generation, meaning that he did not have an earthly father as we have, but this Christ was from God himself. And beyond that, not only was he from God, but he was God. And as we see his right to the throne, as he comes from this line, and as we see who he came from, we now move on to see who it is that he came for. What a list we just saw. Liars and adulterers, idolaters, pride-filled, selfish, angry, greedy, lustful people. And as I mentioned just a moment ago, as we understand that this is who Christ came from, we must also be reminded that this is also who Christ came for. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse number 13, we see the Bible says this, But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Who's thankful for Jesus' words in Matthew 9 that Jesus did not come to call the good and the healed and the fixed up and the well manicured, but Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. And if you're not aware of this, that classification fits every one of us in this room. And oftentimes we forget that. Oftentimes we're quick to think that it didn't take much to save us. But friend, 
understand this. It took everything God had to give to save us. And so when Jesus makes the statement that he has not come to call the righteous, but he's come to call sinners, we understand that this passage of Scripture is one where Christ is being ridiculed for the company that he kept. That he had dinner with the publicans and the sinners. And I thought it was interesting, as Matthew relays this story, what was Matthew? He was a publican. And so what is Matthew, in essence, saying? That Jesus came to save me. One who was far from him. One who, at times in his life, wanted nothing to do with him. This is who Jesus came to save. And as that was true then, my friends, it is still true today. Jesus came to save me. We know that not all in the line of Christ were believers, and we see that very easily as we go through the lineage that Matthew gives us. We know that all did not worship Jehovah, the one true God. We know that this line that Matthew gives us in itself was not the answer to the problem that the world had. We know that this line was imperfect, but from this line came the one who was perfect, who would right all wrongs and who would bring to himself a people from the world who were once sinful, but now are sons and daughters. And this is who Christ came for. The lost and the broken. The wanderers and the ones who had gone astray. Robert Murray McShane, a great preacher in the 1800s, who lived to only be 29 years old, says this, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. You say, well, that's kind of a vast statement, a broad statement. No, friends, that's a true statement. And what Robert Murray McShane understood was that without Christ, he was hopeless. That without Christ, he would run to everything this world had to offer to find peace and hope and satisfaction and contentment. Without Christ, he would try every vice that was known to humanity. But Christ stepped in. He was a preacher who understood not only the sinfulness of man, but the holiness of God. And as he humbled himself before the holiness of God and as he saw himself with a proper understanding, he then also saw his Savior with a proper understanding. <laughs> the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. And friends, that is why we need a Savior. And the Savior is Jesus. So we cannot think too highly of ourselves for in doing so, we will make an idol of our own lives and become ignorant to our continued need for the gospel. We make this statement often, preach the gospel to yourself. And I think in doing so, we've done uh, ourselves a grave error in only preaching the good side of the gospel, that Jesus loves me and that Jesus saved me and that I have a home in heaven. But understand, friends, to truly preach the gospel means to understand the depth of your sinfulness. And the love of a God who sent his son to die in your place. And so we focus, while we focus on the good news of the gospel, before we ever get to the good news, we must understand that there is bad news. And that bad news is that we and of ourselves have no hope. 
Jesus understood this. He understood there were many who were were wanting something more, who were striving for something more. And so that's why in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, he says this, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You want to know what we see through the line of Christ all the way back into the Old Testament? Is that there were people who were laden with a burden that they could not bear. And their burden pointed them to this reality. That there was one who was coming who could bear the burden. There was one who was coming who could take the burden from them and give them his yoke which was easy and light. This work of Christ was recognized by John the Baptist in John 1.29 where he says this, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. As John made that proclamation, he was not saying that the world is sinners and I am perfect, but John understood that in himself he was a sinner who needed the, the Lamb to be slain so that he could be forgiven. Paul understood this as he wrote the great theological letter of Romans. And in his understanding, Paul says this in Romans 3, 23, including himself in this statement, for all have sinned and can come short of the glory of God. But before Paul gives this damning news to the world, he proclaims the truth that he believed that the gospel of Jesus Christ had the power to save. And in Romans 1.16 he says, for I, am pers- for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so as we have seen Christ came from a line of sinners, we also see that Christ came to redeem a world of sinners. And as I said, each of us fits into that category. Each of us aligns with what each of these verses has said about our sinful human nature and our need of a Savior. And so while the line of Christ would leave some feeling uneasy for it's filled with great sinners, to us who believe the line of Christ is cause for great rejoicing, for as they were, so were we until Christ stepped in. And the shock of Christmas is that Christ didn't come for the good. He didn't come for the cleaned up or the religious. He didn't come for those who had it together. He didn't come even for those who were waiting for him. But he came to redeem and to rescue those who realized upon the preaching of hearing the preaching of the gospel that without Christ they will pass into eternity in utter hopelessness. And I wonder today, is there any here who would still fit that category? Lost in your sins. Far from God. Enemies by nature and aliens by birth. If that is your position before Christ today, can I repeat the words of Christ in Matthew 11? Come unto me, all you that, are, that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Would you lay down you're striving and you're trying and you're working at the feet of a Savior who loved you and gave himself for you.
The joy of the gospel is that in Christ we're no longer defined by our past sins. It's actually not good for us to remember Rahab as Rahab the harlot. We should remember her what? Rahab the righteous. Why? Because in Christ she was made whole. And as Christ came for a world full of sinners, we see that he came to redeem them and ransom them and rescue them and bring them to himself. And the glorious message of the gospel, according to Jesus, is that who the Son sets free is free indeed. That no longer do the sins of your past hold you captive but you are free. We're free from the, the power of sin. No longer do we have to give in to these things that once held us. We're free from the penalty of sin, meaning that no longer do we have to fear facing the wrath of God, for Jesus faced that wrath in our place. And it's also a freedom that brings our minds to understand that one day we will be free from the presence of sin. as we spend eternity with the Savior who died in our place. Shane Pruitt says this, you, speaking to those who are lost, you are not too lost for God to find. You are not too dirty for God to cleanse. You are not too broken for God to fix. You are not too hurt for God to heal. You are not too far for God to reach. You are not too guilty for God to forgive. And you are not too sinful for God to save. God knew what he was stepping into when he sent his son into this world and he knew that the blood of his son would have the power to cleanse sinners from their sinfulness and make them fit for heaven to be with him. And so the shock of Christmas is in understanding who Christ came from, a line of sinners. And the shock of Christmas is understanding who Christ came for. Sinners such as you and I. There's a song, I believe it's by David Crowder, where he makes this statement, the scandal of grace, you died in my place so my soul can live. And there are many who have critiqued that song, saying that we shouldn't call the grace of God a scandal, but friends, that's exactly what it is when the perfect die in the place of the wicked. A scandal of grace. He died in our place so our souls can live. But maybe you're here today still and you're thinking within your heart, how can this one man who came in a way that we can't even fully comprehend make such a difference? How can this one man die in the place of sinners to redeem them from their sins and give them hope of an eternity with God? I appreciate what J.C. Ryle says on his, in his commentary on the book of Mark. He says, We need not wonder that the sufferings of one person were sufficient propitiation for a sin uh, for the sin of the world, when we remember that he who suffered was the Son of God. If Christ was an ordinary man who died in the place of sinners, then we would have no hope. But friends, Christ was not an ordinary man. He was God in the flesh. Who died in our place. So that we can be forgiven. 
As I said earlier, he was not of an ordinary, he was not an ordinary man of ordinary generation. But as Micah 5.2 tells us, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come, shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. And as that prophecy was given about our Savior Jesus, we understand that this Jesus, the eternal King of heaven, the one whose goings forth are from old and to everlasting, is also the Jesus, uh, the Jesus who was the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. He is the sacrifice for sins, and in Him we have hope. The big idea that we began with again this morning is this. This account calls us to recognize the wickedness that resides in the world as well as the cleansing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ who reigns as eternal King. Friends, this Christmas season, let's not just simply find ourselves wrapped up in this idea of a baby that was born in a manger. But let's see the whole redemptive narrative. That while the gift of Christ's coming was precious, we understand the gift of his death is of equal preciousness. And the gift of his resurrection is of equal preciousness once more because in his coming in his death, and in his resurrection, we have hope. And so as we think about the shock of Christmas, I wonder this Christmas season, who will you share the shock of Christmas with? If you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then who will you share his goodness with? who may be in a place of hopelessness in their lives. Sometimes we think of the world and we say, I, I can't imagine how Christ could save some of them. When really the thoughts in our heart should be, wow, I can't imagine Christ could save me. And even if he could, and he did, I can't imagine that he would. Because I'm nothing in of myself. There's nothing in me that God needed. But as we go back to our study in Genesis, we understand that there was something in me that God wanted. As he made me in his image for his honor and for his glory, we see that in our brokenness, he desired to redeem us, to bring us back to himself for his glory and for our good. As we close things up, and I'm sure you're a little shocked as I am that it's only 11.07. <laughs> I want to close with, a, with reading a couple of lines from a great Christmas song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It says this, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our sins and fears, Release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, 
hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Is your heart encouraged this morning that the line Christ came from was filled with people just like you and I? And the line that Christ came from points us to the line or the people that Christ came to save. And so let us rejoice in the shock of Christmas. For Christ, the Savior of the world, has come. And for those in the room who cannot rejoice, may you come today at His invitation, bowing humbly before His feet, understanding your sinfulness and His holiness. May we come to Him in great rejoicing. God, we love you, and we thank you for this time.